One of the fascinating things about the four gospel records at the start of the New Testament is the vast difference in how they each begin to tell the gospel story. By a long way, Luke provides the most detail regarding the birth of, of Jesus, but he chooses not to record the events that we're about to consider in Matthew's gospel. John, whose gospel account stands apart from the other three in a number of ways, he focuses not on the earthly events which took place, but upon making clear doctrinally and spiritually who Jesus is and why he came, and leaving his readers in no doubt that the baby born in Bethlehem is none other than the eternal creator made flesh, through whom, by a work of God, those who believe on him may themselves become children of God. Mark simply begins by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then he quotes two Old Testament verses, one from Malachi and one from Isaiah. And then by the time we're at verse 4, he's fast forwards 30 years and we find John the Baptist in the wilderness preaching and baptising repentance for the remission of sins. The four accounts are also very different. Of course, all of these written records were produced under the inspiration of God in the person of his spirit. And when placed alongside one another, and when they're considered together, they provide a wonderfully comprehensive account of what took place. So most of the familiar narrative which we read at Christmas each year, the vast majority of that comes from the Gospel of Luke. Whilst Matthew restricts himself to those events concerning Joseph, which we looked at last week in the second half of chapter 1, and then this event which occurred sometime after Christ's birth, which is of particular interest to him, with his Jewish readership in mind. These men who arrive from the East, not to ask if a new king has been born, but absolutely certain that it has already happened and that the arrival of this child is of such significance. They just had to make this journey that they might come and worship him. They're absolutely convinced the child is already here and he must be worshipped. It's quite a remarkable thing. Well, please have opened those opening 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2 and I want to look at three particular things with you this morning. Let's first of all consider these wise men. And we'll do this under the title of humble worship. And we're considering primarily the opening two verses and then verses 9 and 10 and 11. So much conjecture lies around these Eastern visitors. 
and so much of it actually really doesn't matter. We read after Jesus was born. How long after? This star they saw in the east, did they see it some considerable time before Jesus was to be born? So that by the time they get to Bethlehem, it's just a few days or weeks after his birth? Or did that star appear at the time of Christ's birth as a sign of his arrival? And so it's now many, many months later when they turn up with their gifts. Herod asked them. They told him. But we don't get to know what it was that they told him. Although there is a big clue actually in verse 16. We didn't read that far. But if you have a sneaky look, you'll see that the wise men arrived a good time after they believed the child had been born. And who are these wise men? The, the word that's used in the original language is magi. Well, certainly not kings, they would have been named as such. Magi was a known term based on a word found from the East, from the, the Medo-Persian culture, but also from Chaldea in Babylon. Right over, That's kind of modern day Iran and Iraq. On our maps today. Now in that region even in New Testament days and before and particularly in Babylon the scientific of the stars and planets astronomy as we would call it today it was surprisingly advanced for their day but throughout that whole region the idea that the movement of the heavenly bodies had an impact upon events here on earth was also very common and often taken very seriously indeed. Now, of course, a form of that exists today in what we call astrology and the Bible very firmly forbids us to dabble in that kind of mysticism. We are to be people of revealed truth as we find it in the word of God, not with mystic speculations. But uh, across this spectrum of interest in the, the stars and the moon and the planets and the sun, uh, and it was quite a spectrum of, of interest in those, in those days, on the one end, you would find a purely scientific form of study. And then uh, at the other end, something more akin to sorcery. And between those two extremes, all shades and mixtures of philosophy and religion in between. Uh, it's also speculated that they may well also have had copies of some or all of the Old Testament scriptures in some quite substantial libraries that they held in those days. Of course, they weren't bound books like we have 
it would all have been in the form of scrolls or something along those lines. Or in some cases, even very ancient documents etched on clay tablets or clay cylinders. Well, these wise men almost certainly came from that general region, Medo-Persia or Babylon. And they clearly were educated in this area of belief and understanding what exactly they may have uh, believed, where they may have stood on that sliding scale of belief and religion and mysticism, uh, well, we just don't know. But almost certainly that was the kind of background that they had. Of course, we don't know how many of them there were either. Their three types of gift mentioned in verse 11, of course, have given way to the common assumption that there must have been three wise men, but we're not actually told. And as for the star, well, several very reasonable, naturally occurring explanations for what that might have been have been put forward. Um, perhaps an alignment of certain planets, Saturn and Jupiter, are often mentioned. Perhaps it was some kind of supernova that they saw in the night sky. Of course, neither can we discount the possibility of a supernatural intervention by God himself in the night sky. Well, we just don't know. What they didn't do is follow the star from the east all the way west to Jerusalem. Uh, we're told they saw it in the east and by means unknown to us, they came to their conclusion about what this sign in the night sky meant. And they made their way to Jerusalem, as they state in verse 2. The star then reappears at verse 9 to indicate where the child may be found as they make their way to Bethlehem. So if you wish to believe that there were three named Melchior, Balthazar and Caspar, that one came from India, one from Egypt and the other from Greece, that they were baptised by the Apostle Thomas and that their earthly remains once were interred in the church of St. Sophia in Constantinople, but now actually are laid to rest in Cologne Cathedral. Well, it all sounds rather exciting to some, maybe. Plausible to some degree, to others, perhaps. But actually, it makes no difference whatsoever to what is actually recorded in Matthew chapter 2. And whatever you may have heard of those kinds of things, it, it adds nothing to our understanding of the text of the Bible. And it's interesting, actually, that God chooses not to elaborate any more about these men than we actually find in the gospel record. It's kept short and simple and we are simply called to uh, accept these statements about these wise men who come, not to get all caught up in the detail that may lie behind it all. But what it does actually demonstrate with all of this 
this other folklore virtually that's built up around these men is how easily extra biblical stories and theories can build up uh, and based upon a biblical text and yet found nowhere in the text uh, and for some that which lies outside of the bible can become so important that all of this stuff over here actually is almost put on an equal footing to everything that's going on in the Bible. Uh, sometimes it may seem quite compelling. Some of these kinds of stories can be. Uh, sometimes it might seem quite plausible. Some of these theories can appear to be so. But it, it actually becomes a completely unnecessary and unhelpful distraction which adds nothing to what's in the Bible. Matthew's lack of information or explanation regarding all of these kinds of questions that people want answered, it actually serves to throw the spotlight on the whole point of mentioning this event at all. This is such an extraordinary visitation as these men arrive out of nowhere saying what they say about this baby who has been born. This doesn't happen every day in Jerusalem. Men from the east just don't turn up in Bethlehem with expensive gifts to worship a baby. It just doesn't happen. Except this time. With this baby. And these bare facts actually are enough to catch our attention and to draw us in. Whatever it is that's gone on in the minds of these men, however it was that they came to their conclusion, however it was that God was at work in all of this, it, they show us, in contrast to King Herod, what is the correct response to this Lord Jesus? That he is worthy of all worship. There's a danger that all of that gets lost. And so Matthew just makes that his focus. For these wise men, seeing the star isn't enough. We must fall at his feet and adore him. That's the really important thing to grasp. And so Matthew keeps everything else out of the way so that that's what we see. And so with Bethlehem having been identified for them as their final destination from verse 9, we are told that they rejoice with exceedingly great joy. All of these superlatives being used. They could not have been more joyful than they felt at that moment. They could not have been more thrilled. They could not have been more filled with eager anticipation for what they were about to, to see in Bethlehem. 
This is by far the biggest thing that's ever happened to them. Of all the stories that they're going to tell their grandchildren in their own age, this will beat all of them by a country mile. Precisely what they understood about Jesus, we don't know. But they knew this. This is no ordinary baby. And when their eyes fell upon that young child with Mary, they knew that the only appropriate response was to fall on their knees before him. Too much, perhaps, is made of their gifts. You've probably heard it said that gold is a symbol of the riches of royalty, that frankincense is representative of the worship of God, incense being very much a part of uh, the worship of God in those days. And myrrh was a spice used, amongst other things, in the preparation of a body for burial. Gold as to a king, frankincense as to one who is God, and myrrh as to God become flesh, that he might die. Now, I'm fairly convinced that there really is something in that, in expressing those views based upon those gifts, but actually of far greater worth is the gift of their worship. They didn't worship Mary, by the way, please note that. They worshipped Christ. Their gifts were an expression of their appreciation of this very significant thing that's happened. But the most important thing of all is worship that comes from the heart. To humble yourself before the Saviour. To cast yourself before the one who is both God and man. To realise that you're in the presence of one who has no equal. These wise men were wise indeed. And their true wisdom is seen as they kneel at the feet of the Saviour. Have you done the same? Well, secondly, we turn our attention to King Herod. And in him, what we discover is cold rejection. Herod was a really nasty piece of work. Clearly, the wise men didn't come directly to Herod. They were, ask, they were asking around in general in Jerusalem and word got back to the palace. Jerusalem was probably troubled because they knew that when Herod the king got wind of this, it would only mean trouble for everyone. This Herod is Herod the Great. The years in between the Old and New Testaments were extremely turbulent times across all of the Near and Middle East. Actually, much of their history was turbulent in that region. Uh, but between the Old and New Testaments, it certainly was. 
It was an era which began with men like Alexander the Great. And the, there was immense conflict between many nations. And there was hotly and often viciously contended political rivalries, even within single nations. And Israel and Palestine were no exception to these things. There were various families in those nations who rose to prominence during that time. And there were all kinds of political manoeuvrings going on as tensions and ambitions raged all around. As the New Testament era approached, the Roman Empire started to flex its muscles and expand. And the Roman Empire, of course, became the dominant force all throughout Europe and the Middle East. And many of the ruling families in these countries that Rome conquered, uh, they would enter into rather devious and dubious self-serving deals with Rome and they would be allowed to retain a semblance of power and authority even though they were very firmly under Rome's thumb. As long as they could keep their own people in check, as long as Rome received the taxes that they wanted, as long as Rome had the access into and through those nations that Rome wanted, Rome generally was very happy with the arrangement. Herod the Great was descended from such a family as that. And all of that conflict and self-serving that had gone on during that period of history, all of that was in Herod's DNA. And he wasn't even Jewish, although he often made himself out to be. His family actually originated in the country of Edom to the east. Initially, Herod was appointed by Rome as Tetrarch of Galilee, and that happened in the year 47 BC. But eventually, uh, his influence expanded and he held sway over all of Judea and Palestine until his death in the year 4 BC. And if you're wondering how Herod could still be alive after Jesus was born, if he died in 4 BC, well, that's actually because of minor errors that were made when the year of Christ's birth was being decided centuries later, as our modern day calendar was evolving and, well, they got their calculations wrong and they got the date wrong by about five years or so. And so Jesus wasn't actually born in year naught on that BC AD calendar. He was actually born BC. But that's got nothing to do with the Bible. That's just the errors that men made in the centuries thereafter. There's nothing dodgy about the biblical record. The Jewish historian of the time, Josephus, he sums up Herod the Great in three words. 
capable, crafty and cruel. And that proved to be a devastating combination to the point where he would even have some of his own sons executed when he saw them as a threat to his throne. Uh, if you enjoy history, um, there are plenty of books written uh, covering uh, that period of history that I've just been talking about. And uh, one Bible commentary that I would certainly recommend, which goes into some of the background in a bit more detail, is that written by William Hendrickson, published by the Banner of Truth. And he provides quite a detailed overview of all of that backstory. Um, so if you enjoy reading about that kind of thing, I'd uh, highly recommend it. Herod was a king who started off badly and only got worse. And so when he hears the claim that a new king has been born, you can be sure he has only one outcome in mind. Given that this is a man who's already bumped off at least three of his own sons. To say he was troubled is something of an understatement. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, well, they don't need to be told that this isn't going to end well if Herod gets to hear this news and if Herod gets his way. So this capable, crafty, cruel man calls the wise men in secret. Well, of course he does. And this capable, crafty, cruel man claims that he wants them to disclose the child's location so that he too may join them in worship of the child. Well, of course he does. Because he's only been able to tell them that it's in Bethlehem. He wants them to come back and give him the exact address. And at verse 12, we see how God intervenes and thwarts Herod's scheming wickedness. Now, you may not be cruel like Herod was. I doubt very much you are. Not like Herod was. But many do nevertheless see Christ as a threat like Herod did. A new king means that I'm no longer the one sitting on the throne. A new king means someone to whom I must submit myself. Someone who I must now serve. And the Lord Jesus Christ is that. Many people know it and understand it. And because of that, they reject him. In our series in Romans on, in the afternoons, I've already pointed out that the gospel is not just about a set of truths and propositions. It's about a person. It's about a person who came into the world to have dealings with us in order that we might have dealings with him. The gospel is not the presentation of a lifestyle choice. It will completely alter the course of your life but it will do so because you've had an encounter with the person of Christ. Talk to people just in general terms about religion and many will happily engage with you. Discuss with them whether or not they believe in God and 
more than you might imagine, will leave the door open to that possibility as long as it's a God who I can fashion for myself so that, so that this God doesn't require more of me than I am prepared to give. But drop the name Jesus into the conversation and then speak of him as the Christ of God, that he alone is the way and the truth and the life and that no one can come to God except through him. No one can come to God the Father except on Christ's terms. And all of a sudden the tone of the conversation changes. Why? Because the one who is king, the one who must be king, is a threat. He's a threat to everything they love. He's a threat to everything they stand for. Just as it was for Herod. In all of us, in our sin, there is a built-in rejection even we can go so far as to say a hatred of Christ. Was he a good man? Well, okay, probably, people will say. A worker of miracles? Mm, maybe. But start to talk to them about the uncompromising way that Jesus spoke of sin and righteousness, of heaven and hell, and of our need of salvation and to repent and to follow him. No, we will not have this man to reign over us. The people realize that the Lord Jesus Christ is a direct threat to their own reign over their own life. In the same way that for Herod, Jesus was a threat to his earthly throne. But the principle is the same. No, we, we can't have this Jesus to be doing that sort of thing. Dear friends, Herod had a heart as cold and as dead as stone. And he died as a man lost and condemned in his sins. And without Christ, and if you likewise reject Jesus as Saviour and Lord, you too will die in your sins without Christ and without hope. Well, in closing, we're going to consider one third and final group of people who display astonishing indifference. And we find these in verses four and five, and these are the chief priests and the scribes who are mentioned in the story. Now, in many, in many ways, once we know something of the background of Herod, we're not really surprised by his response when the wise men arrived. But when it comes to these chief priests and scribes, they are the ones who really should be leaving us completely speechless. 
they have no difficulty whatsoever in providing the answer that Herod wants. They know. He obviously expected them to know, and they do. They can turn straight away to their Old Testament scriptures, to Micah. And for us in our Bibles today, it's chapter 5 and verse 2. Now, they wouldn't have had those, those chapters and verses in, in their scriptures, but that's the verse they turn to. Literally quoting chapter and verse, able to quote it directly to them. Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the place the scriptures speak of. For this one who's to be the ruler of Israel and our shepherd. Now, of course, the arrival of this Messiah, the arrival of the Christ, this should have been their heart's overwhelming desire. This should have been the prayer upon their lips every day that the promised one would come. They should have been rejoicing at the thought that Israel's true and rightful king of the house of David is arriving to, repla to replace the likes of Herod. These men should have been looking back over their shoulders, shouting Bethlehem to Herod as they run down towards the city gates to sprint the five or so miles down the road to Bethlehem to find this thing that the wise men are speaking about. Can it be? Can it be? Nothing. Nothing. You see, you can know it all, chapter and verse. You can recite it off by heart. You can have been brought up with the greatest spiritual blessings and privileges. You can be considered by other people to be a very religious person. You can be thought of as part of the fixtures and fittings in your local church but you have no care for Christ. None at all. Just like these men. It's astonishing. Herod's treatment of the infants in Bethlehem, which we'll consider next time, is truly barbaric. But you know, at another level, it's the response of these men which is the most tragic. To know so much, to be so close, and yet to be as lost and far away as Herod was. Astonishing indifference, cold rejection, humble worship. Which is true of you this morning? Oh, that God in his grace would break each one of us. How this should be our prayer, that he would break each one of us and make each of us truly wise to seek him who alone is worthy that we 
might fall at his feet in humble worship and praise. My Lord, my Saviour, my King. And as we were thinking about last week from Romans, Christ Jesus, my Lord. Lord.